Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, June the 4th, 2022. It is currently 3.22 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live two stories above a street right here in Abilene, Texas. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Whenever you're hearing this, it may not be day daytime. It may be morning time, nighttime. Whenever you hear this, wherever you may be, however you hear this, thank you so much for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it, and we hope this will prove to be beneficial. But I have to be honest with you, I have no idea, okay? I have literally no idea if this is going to be beneficial. This may be absolutely a complete waste of your time. I know that's not the kind of tease you're supposed to give. When you when you do that podcast introduction, you're supposed to give that tease that that you try, you're supposed to set the hook so that you can grab on to people and you can reel them in and keep them there all the way to the last thrilling second of your episode. But I don't have a hook. I don't, I don't, I know. I, all I can tell you is this could be an absolute waste of your time. And I, and I kind of believe it's going to be just that. But I know you're saying, but why should I listen? Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back a little bit in time, not too far, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. We're going to go back a couple of weeks so that we can figure out what the future is going to look like. Now, I don't know if you know. I mean, I'm assuming you know. I'm assuming you know the big news story that made it all over, all over the place. Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. Yes, that Rick Warren, the purpose-driven Rick Warren. Rick Warren of Saddleback Church has announced that he will be retiring in September. Now, remember Rick Warren, one of the most influential pastors in the evangelical world, Saddleback Church, one of the most influential churches in America. Some would call it one of the most influential Southern Baptist churches, however, how they are associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, we could get into that whole discussion. But no one can deny the influence of Rick Warren, and no one can deny the influence of Saddleback. I am not saying a good influence. I'm not even saying a bad influence. I'm just acknowledging the reality of influence. And even if you're like, I don't care about Rick Warren, I don't care about Saddleback, doesn't bother me, just, I cannot stress this enough. Influence has a way of influencing the world of your, the, the, the Christian world that you are a part of. Even if you don't, even if you ignore what's happening around you, that influence has a way of just spreading. It creeps in unawares. So the best thing to do is that we pay attention to what's happening. We take every thought captive, and then we are prepared. We can at least recognize when the influence shows up on our doorsteps, and then we can then address it from a position of knowledge, not one of ignorance. So because Rick Warren is stepping down, then what's going to be the future of Saddleback Church? Is Saddleback Church going to maintain its same? Is Saddleback Church going to be as influential a year from now as it is today? Now, I think in some ways it's already lost its influence. I don't think it's near as relevant as other churches, but it still shows up if you look at a list of like the top 25 or top 30, top 50 most influential churches. Saddleback still appears on most of those lists. So what is it going to look like a year from now, two years from now? Well, we can get an idea by just going back in time. See, we've gone, we, we've already done this once and we're going to do it again. We are going back to listen to sermons, or I should say, review, analyze, and critique sermons that have been, that was preached, well, by the person named as Rick Warren's successor. The person who's going to be taking over Saddleback Church is Pastor Andy Wood of Echo Church in San Jose, California. He's going to be leaving that church and going to Saddleback. And not only have we reviewed one of his sermons, which was very frustrating and irritating. I'm not going to go back and, and you know, review my review. But he, not only is he coming in as a pastor, well, his wife is coming in as a pastor. So they're going to have Andy Wood as kind of the lead pastor. And Stacy Wood is going to be a teaching pastor at Saddleback Church. So Saddleback Church is going to have a 
Andy Wood's going to be the lead pastor, and Stacy Wood is going to be the teaching pastor. They're going to have a female teaching pastor at Saddleback. I'm not saying that that's brand new. I'm not saying that's that's uh, unique. I'm just telling you that is what's going to happen. And of course, this brings up the debate of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Now, if you're not familiar with the two terms, let me explain. Summarized by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, complementarianism is the viewpoint that God restricts women from serving in certain church leadership roles and instead calls women to serve equally important but roles that would be a, that would kind of complement roles that would be that would be a uh, roles that would be uh, complementary complementary uh, they, they would it would kind of uh, would complement all right but they would not let me go back to the idea they would uh, it, it would complementarianism would restrict women from serving in certain church leadership roles. They can serve in a way, in some kind of an equal way, that would complement, but they can't be in leadership roles. D- does does that make sense? All right? Or we could just say this. Complementarianism would be the view. I'll just state it in a more direct way. Women can't be pastors. Women can't be lead pastors. Women can't can't serve in that kind of way. Now, what some will say is, okay, well, we'll hold to a complementarian view, but if the wife comes along, right, and she, in, in a sense, she's, she serves in a way that's complementary, right, that, that, that complementary, that, that she, in a sense, comes along and serves along in kind of an equal way, like, like she's kind of the teaching pastor, but the husband is the lead pastor, well, then some would say, well, that kind of fits within the complementarian view. Others would say, no, 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 no. She can't teach or exercise authority over, well, men and the church. And if she's a teaching pastor, she would be teaching men. And that's not allowed in the complementarian view. Others would say, no, 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 no. She's just simply, she, she's not the leader. She's just complimenting. She's, she's serving in a kind of a, 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 an equal kind of role, but she's not the leader. So some would try to even argue that a female teaching pastor would fit along those kinds of line. All right. So I, I, I hopefully that makes sense. Um, I hope that does. Um, and but if we look at it from if we look at it from the egalitarian view, the egalitarianism is the viewpoint that there are no biblical gender based restrictions on ministry in the church. With both positions claiming to be biblically based, it is crucial, crucially important to fully examine what exactly the Bible does say on the issue of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Now, but this is very important to realize. Both claim to be biblical. Both claim to be theologically orthodox. Both claim that they are right and the other is wrong. The complementarian, so I'll just say this again, the complementarian view is it restricts women from serving in certain church leadership roles and would call women to serve in kind of an equal, important role that would kind of complement, right? It would complement. It would go along with, but not exercising leadership. The egalitarians, like there's no restriction, no restriction at all. The woman can be the lead pastor, the bishop, whatever offices you have, the woman can be that. Two very different approaches. Both would quote scripture to support their positions. Both would. Now, typically, if you're a complementarian, you would, you would typically say, I think, I think, you know, I can't, you would think that in the complementarian view, you would just say, look, you can't have a woman teaching the men, uh, the, the, the congregation, I should say, with men present on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday from the pulpit. You can't do that. If the woman is teaching women in, in the church, like in a Sunday school classroom, or even if all the women are in the sanctuary and the men are somewhere else, she could do that, but she can't teach the men in the church in that capacity. Well, clearly, Saddleback Church is now going to have a female teaching pastor. Now, I don't know if they, I, I know they've already ordained women, so I don't know exactly their current situation. So I'm not saying that this is something brand new, but we just need to know going forward, one of the most influential churches in the United States of America is going to have a female teaching pastor.
All right. And her name will be Stacy Wood. So if you're an egalitarian, you're going to be wonder- happy and you're going to celebrate this. If you're a complementarian, if you hold to the complementarianism view, for the most part, you're going to be like, nope, not acceptable. Some, I think, within the complementarian view will say, well, but what? She's just simply complimenting her pastor or her husband. She's, she's kind of in an equal way, right? She, it, there's nothing wrong in what she's doing. And that debate will continue to rage and continue to rage for, I think it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. It's not going to get better uh, because, well, culture is changing. And as the culture changes, the church follows. I mean, you can say, no, it doesn't. It always has and it always will. The church is usually a couple of years behind the culture, but it always follows it in some way, shape, or form. Now, I'm not saying that that's true of every church. I'm saying in general, that is what happens, all right? That is what happens. So there's complementarianism and egalitarianism, all right? Uh, okay, I, I yeah, all right. There, there's some more we could work on there, but that's okay. And I'm sorry I went through that so quickly, but I... My my original thought is is complementarianism is this egalitarianism is this and what they're doing is in the egalitarian camp, but then I started thinking about it. You know, if you really look at how the the council and biblical manhood and womanhood serves it or, or describes it again, complementarianism is the viewpoint that God restricts women from serving in certain church leadership roles, and instead calls women to serve in an equally important but in roles that would complement right. You can say, well, she's the teaching pastor. The husband's the, the lead pastor. She's simply complimenting that, right? She's just going along with that. I, so I, I'm, I'm thinking how someone could kind of take that definition and use it to even justify that. It'll, it'll be interesting. I'll probably get emails with people trying to take sides. I'm not here to get into that discussion right now. Here's what I want to do. If she's going to be a teaching pastor, right? in one of the most influential churches in the United States of America, then whatever you believe about complementarianism or egalitarianism, whatever you believe about that, we can set that aside at least temporarily. And what we can do is listen to her preach. And we can review and critique and analyze and see how she handles the word of God. Right? At least, at least we can do that. Because in some cases, we may like, whoa, this is so heretical. Who cares about egalitarianism and complementarianism? This is just heretical right from the start. This is just messed up right from the start. So, um, I think that will be, I, I think that's what we're going to try to accomplish this afternoon. That's what we're going to do. We already reviewed a sermon by Andy Wood. Now we'll review a sermon by Stacy Wood. And then we'll probably review maybe a couple of more sermons. Leading up to when they take over, I think on September the 14th. And then we'll, we will review, um, the first sermon preached by Andy Wood at Saddleback when he becomes the official pastor. And then we'll pre, we'll review the first sermon preached by Stacy Wood as the teaching pastor. And then we'll be done with this. And then you can do whatever you want. But at least we, we have followed this process. We, we, we've announced what was going to happen. We've gone back to kind of get an idea where the church is going to be headed in the future. And then we'll hear how it starts off, and then we'll just wait and see. It does Saddleback lose all of its influence, and it just it's no longer even in the top fifty. Or maybe Andy and Stacy Wood takes it to a level of influence that no one has ever even seen before. Maybe they and maybe they take it in a completely maybe the Saddleback of five years from now is not even going to look anything like the Saddleback of today. Only time will tell. But I thought this would be good to go. So we're going to go back. Um, I think this is about three weeks ago. Um, it's like the beauty in the beauty and the brokenness or something along those lines. That's the title of it by Stacy Wood. It's only about 30 minutes, 33 minutes long. So we will review it. We'll analyze it. We'll critique it. As always, if you're listening live, jump into the chat and offer your own uh, ideas there. And um and I think I think that's I think that's everything. I think I think that gets us set up. I think I think that's good. I, I hope that's I hope that's helpful. I I just feel like we could do a lot more work on complementarianism and egalitarianism. It's just when I look at that definition of complementarianism, I'm like, man, is that does she what she's doing? Does it fit the complementarian idea as a teaching pastor? 
She's not the lead pastor, the husband. So, you know, she's just in a, uh, she's just in a, in a, in a sense, she's just in a complimenting what's going on, right? She's just kind of in a, in a way. So I, does that fit? That's what I'm thinking here. I'm just thinking, does that work? Does that work? I, I don't know. It may fit the definition of complementarianism. The issue is set aside complementarianism and egalitarianism. Set those aside. Is it biblical? Is that the biblical model? I mean, you know, right? I mean, just because she's serving in a complementary way, if she's serving in a complementary way, she's serving in a complementary way, so that's that fits, right? Because she's serving in a complementary way and not in a leadership way, then somehow that's complementarianism. I, I maybe maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. It would be interesting to see. I, I think in most churches that are strong complementarian, even even if she's serving in a complementary way, I don't think it would be acceptable. So it kind of raises an interesting point. But I just wanted to make sure I draw that distinction that she's a teaching pastor. So is that full-blown egalitarianism or is this a kind of a modif- modified complementarianism or because she's serving in a complementary way, it, it actually works? Here we go. We're going to, but you know what? We'll set all of that aside. We'll set it all aside, right? And we'll listen to her preach and we'll see how she handles the scriptures. We saw how her hand, her husband handled the scriptures, and there was some major problems there. We'll see what she does. Are you ready? Here we go. I was thinking back on the day that I became a mom, when my firstborn son, Caveman, was born. And that moment when they placed him on my chest, and he was all slimy and red and wrinkled, and the first words out of my mouth were, he's perfect. He is perfect. And of course, Andy was right there beside me. And he kind of, when I said that, he kind of looked at me sideways. And he might have mentioned that Bible verse in Psalm 51 that talks about surely I was sinful from birth. And I was like, oh my gosh, Andy, give me my moments. And, uh, <laughs> and, and there's just something about a newborn baby that's so flawless. I was mesmerized by his little face and his skin and his fingers and toes. But you know, if, as we go through life, life has a way of chipping away at us, doesn't it? And although uh, a piece of pottery, uh, maybe a, this, this flower pot, it's a far cry from a beautiful little human baby. But when you, think about, when you think about life and it just has a way of beating us up. And so that little beautiful baby that has known nothing but love and had every need met in their life, eventually they're going to experience someone's anger toward them. And eventually someone's going to say some kind of demeaning comment to them. And that child's going to grow up and perhaps they're going to go through a divorce in their household. Okay, now, she did mention the psalm about we're all conceived in sin. Um, but I, I, I don't want to accuse this of semi-Pelagianism. I don't want to go there, but what it sounds like you can hear, remember we're, we took the audio from a, a video, uh, obviously, and the audio from a sermon where obviously she, she's, she's using a, an, an illustration. She's got a, an object lesson in front of her. She has a pot and she's saying, so then they experience this and then she's hitting the pot and then they experience this, hit the pot. In other words, life breaks you, life breaks you. Life breaks you because of all these external things that happen to you. I just want to make sure we are dogmatically clear on this. I'm not saying she's teaching semi-Pelagianism. I'm not saying that, but I'm nervous because the biblical model is we're broken from the word go, right? We are brought forth broken. We are brought forth dead in our trespasses and sins. We are brought forth depraved, whether we experience any external, boom, bad things that that break us from an external thing, we're already broken internally, right? You can be in a good family with a good mom and dad who clearly have evidence that God exists, 
Adam and Eve, you can be like, there's really no one else in the world to do much to you, to hurt you, and you can still end up killing your brother, right? Cain killing Abel, right? So um, we, we start off broken. We, we are brought forth in sin. We're brought forth dead in our trespasses and sins. Remember this. I just, I have to stress this. I'm not saying this is semi-Pelagianism. I'm not saying that. I'm going to listen and see if I hear it, but let's make sure you never forget this. We, we do not become sinners by sinning. We sin because we are sinners. We don't become sinners. We are sinners. We are, we are, we are sinners by nature. Therefore, we sin. Sin is the natural outworking of who we are. We are sinners. That is what we are. We are born that way. Now, that sin manifests itself in different ways, but we are all sinners. We are all born that way. That is the fact. Now, I'm not saying she's going against this, but I'm going to back it up a little bit because she, she does mention the verse in Psalm, right, uh, where we're conceived and brought forth in sin. Okay, all right. She makes a little joke about that, but I'm going to back this up and just see how she handles this. Here we go. As we go through life, life has a way of chipping away at us, doesn't it? And although uh, a piece of pottery, maybe a, this, this flower pot, it's a far cry from a beautiful little human baby. But when you, think about, when you think about life and it just has a way of beating us up. And so that little beautiful baby that has known nothing but love and had every need met in their life, eventually they're going to experience someone's anger toward them. And eventually someone's going to say some kind of demeaning comment to them. And that child's going to grow up and perhaps they're going to go through a divorce in their household. Maybe there's abuse that they experience. Perhaps they have some type of major flaw that comes out as they get into adulthood. Maybe they learn they have a, a learning disability. Maybe there's some kind of medical diagnosis that changes the whole trajectory of their life. Maybe that child doesn't feel like they're physically attracted or wanted or loved. And this life that seemed so beautiful, that seemed so flawless when we first began, now it just ends like, seems like it's in pieces. And what was so beautiful, we can't even remember the original picture of this beautiful work of art because all we can see is brokenness and all we can see is flaws. And we wake up one day and we think, how in the world did this happen? How did my life end up in shambles? And so today we're going to hopefully take an honest look at some of the brokenness in our own lives. And again, I, I, I'm not saying she's doing this, but I just want you to realize like, so what she's saying, we wake up one day and we realize, how did I get here? And it's because of all of these external things that broke us. We were broken by this and we're broken by this and we're broken by that. The biblical model is most likely we end up some, somewhere, yes, not by no way denying the external things that happen to us, but ultimately it's because of our own depravity and our own sin, which caused us to react to those external things, probably in an unbiblical and hurtful and harmful way to ourselves and to others. In other words, do I look to the, the flaw, the brokenness in me? Or do I look at my brokenness as a result of external forces? Do I see the brokenness that is literally me, my nature? Or do I look at the brokenness as caused by everyone else? I'm broken because my parents did this. I'm broken because the people in school did this. And now no one can deny the ramifications and impact of those things. But I think the real issue is the brokenness that we start off. We start off broken. We start off flawed. We don't become flawed because of what happens to us. We are flawed and do flawed things. I, 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 I know I, I'm just very sensitive to anything that even remotely smells like uh, semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism. As soon as I, as soon as I, I'm like, nope, Pelagianism, run. Because Pelagian, Pelagius was a heretic, Pelagianism is heresy, and I reject it outright. Outright, 100%. I, be, I believe the best, I, to me, I think the greatest doctrine in the Bible for understanding myself and the world around me is the doctrine of total depravity. And explain, why is the world so messed up? Because we're messed up. Okay. Why am I so messed up? Because I was born that way. And like the, the, 
total depravity explains the entire world. It explains everything. It explains why things go wrong in families, in churches, in society. It ex- the, the problem with the world, we always want to fix, we always want to stop the things that chip away at us or that breaks the pottery. The thing that we're all broken pottery to start off with. So I'm not saying she's teaching, please hear me. I am not saying she's teaching semi-Pelagianism. I am not saying that as of now. I may change my mind. We'll, we will see where this is going, all right? But she's using a, a visual aid, an object lesson, right? A lot of people say that's a great way to preach and teach for those who are listening who are visual. Uh, they, they like that. So I, I always like creativity and preaching. I'm not very creative. I'm like, open your Bibles. Let's spend the next hour and 35 minutes trying to figure out the verse. I'm not so good at sometimes being, I wish I was better at this. I wish I, I wish sometimes I was more creative in how I approached it. Uh, so sometimes I hate myself that I don't do that. Um, sometimes people, but I know it, it's a very fine line because it can become gimmicky. Well, you're just trying to, you're looking anywhere for an object lesson and you try to make the object lesson work in your sermon. And sometimes your object lesson, well, can have inherent theological flaws with it. And so uh, someone just says, if she says beauty, if she says beauty, brokenness, uh, then birth, I will pass out. Something called the simple gospel is what I'm suspicious of here. Oh, okay. I'm glad we we have an ex. We 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 do have someone who listens to us, and I'm very grateful because their experience and their background, they know things that like I'm like, what are you talking about here? What well, what are you talking about here? So I, they're going to be they're listening for something completely. Di- I'm looking for semi Pelagianism, and they're looking for something possibly called the simple gospel. The simple gospel, and I don't know if I know, I don't know if I'm familiar with that phrase, so maybe, see, this is going to turn into another series, I have a feeling, but we will see, we'll see, we will see. All right, already we've got, we've got Psalm 91 now as a series we've got to work on. Everything we keep listening to today turns into another uh, series, but well, that's okay. All right, so here we go. Um, I, I will have to uh, look into that. If for the person listening, if you hear what you're referring to as the simple gospel, please let me know, and then uh, please post links in the uh, Discord channel so that I can go, oh, let's talk about that. It's probably going to be another book. It's probably going to be another book, but here we go. All right, I'm worried about semi-Pelagianism. Not, maybe not full-blown Pelagianism, but se- because semi-Pelagianism has captured the, the American church outright. So here we go. And before we really jump into the message today, I want us to have a little audience participation, okay? We're going to practice some honest confession about the brokenness in our life. I know that sounds scary, but just hang with me. It's going to be okay, people. So at all four of our campuses, I don't care where you are, whether I can see you in your eyeballs right now or not, I want you to participate. And what you're going to do is you're going to find a partner, everybody around you, look at somebody, make eye contact, don't avoid it. Even you introverts out there, I know this is painful for you, but you got to participate. Just go with me here. I'm going to give you a little script. Okay. And partner number one is going to say, "Mm, you looking good on the outside. And then partner number two is going to say, I know, but I'm complicated. I know, but I'm complicated. So partner number one, ready? You're going to say, you're looking good on the outside. And number two, you're going to say, I know, but I am complicated. I am complicated. Go ahead, all four of our locations. That's right. You are at a church where there are no perfect people allowed. And so everyone on your right and your left, they all got flaws. I don't care how good you look on the outside. There's always more to the story. And so we are going to be talking about that today. And and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a really interesting story in the Bible. Okay. All right. I, I, I mean, you could criticize, some people would criticize what she just did there going, ah, uh, that's ridiculous. But okay. It gets everyone participating, whatever. And, and I do love the idea that, hey, there's no perfect people here. We're all sinners. Okay. I, I do love that. 
I do love that. Now, I don't know if she said we're, they're sinners. I think she said there's no perfect people. But is she now my issue is, is she going to say there's no perfect people because we've all been broken by external forces? Or is she going to say there's no perfect people because we were born broken and we're internally flawed? Right. So I, I, I'm just interested which direction is this going to go? You're messed up because of what everything happened to you. You're messed up because whatever, all those external things messed you up or you're messed up because you're inter, you're internally flawed. This is a, a massive different, those are massive different approaches that we're going to see. Now, now, so she, she spent three minutes doing this. Not, she did not take too much time. Very direct. Okay. Very good. Creative, engaging. All these are all the boxes you're supposed to check and being a good communicator. All right. Which I stink at all of these. All right. Because I'm just like, open your Bible. Let's get started. Okay. I'm not very good at this, but she does a great job here from, from just a purely humanistic communication process. She's being creative. She's being engaging and she's getting people participating. Now, my concern is her thesis, I still don't quite understand the thesis, seemingly to be that we're broken by external forces and ignoring the internal brokenness that is already there. I could be wrong, but now we're going to, she's going to look at a Bible story. Oh boy. Okay. So is she, does she have her thesis and going to find a Bible story that somehow fits her thesis or is she going to go, is the, did the text bring out her thesis? Look, some people come up with a thesis and then look for the Bible to find something that will that they can use to go along with it. I, I completely reject that kind of preaching. You go to the Bible and then let the text bring out your thesis. But okay, there we go. Now, if you just want to talk about your idea, just talk about your idea and don't even worry about going to scripture. Someone said, well, you shouldn't do that. It's better than misusing. I would rather there be no scripture than the misuse of scripture. Now, but she may not misuse it. This may be, she may tie this in in the most beautiful way. And this is, and she may prove to be a thousand time better preacher than her husband. We're going to see. Here we go. With some complicated relationships. We got some dysfunction going on. It's the tale of two sisters. And if you thought coming into here today that your family's a little dysfunctional, well, you are in good company. You're going to feel a lot better about yourself after I read you this story. So it's going to pick up in Genesis chapter 29, verse 16. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So right out of the gate, like there is competition and comparison between these two sisters. They have grown up this way. And Rachel, there's a younger sister, Leah, the older sister. Rachel is lovely in form. She has a beautiful figure, but Leah has weak eyes. Okay, we got to do a little work here. Got to do a little work here. All right, Genesis 29, 17, Leah was tender-eyed, the way the King James puts it, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored, all right? Now, I'm going to read from, i got the Christian Standard Bible right here. Let me grab it. I've got a Bible inside that Bible. i got Bibles everywhere here. Let's go here. I, now, I hate, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. One of the things I hate about listening to preaching <laughs> This is one, this is why I would have a heart. And okay, I, okay, we need we need to talk here. All right, I'm, I'm going to make sure I, I I explain this because sometimes when we review sermons, the last thing I want to occur in the reviewing of sermons is to create people who are so critical that they handled themselves inappropriately during a church service listening to a sermon. Now, everything in my power, if I'm listening to this sermon, would be like, no, wait a minute, this says tender eyed. She said weak-eyed, and she's saying that clearly these girls were in competition. Now, what I would do, there would be a part of me that would like, I'm just going to go grab a, a blue letter Bible app. I'm going to just, I'm just going to start looking this up, doing my study as she is preaching. That is disrespectful, and that is wrong, and I would never condone that. I would just grab in my notebook going, Genesis 29, I would just write quick note, Genesis, Genesis 29, 17, Tender-eyed, what, is, what does this word mean? And does this verse 
demonstrate competition. I would just write the questions down in my notes really quick, and then I would immediately put my eyes right back up on the person speaking to show respect, all right? Because I, as a preacher, well, forget preaching. I just think I don't care if I was in a military briefing listening to someone. I always tried to show respect to the person speaking because it's just weird. A good portion of the population are scared to death of public speaking, right? But for some reason, when they're listening to someone publicly speaking, all of their manners go right out of the window and they're very disrespectful. And nothing is worse than when you're preaching and all of a sudden you see that there's someone in the church deciding to just have a Bible study. Like, like, hey, you couldn't have a Bible study Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But when I start preaching, now you're back there going, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. How about you pay attention to, let me finish before you want to have your Bible study. Now, when we're doing a review like this, we're not there, so we, we can we can do that. But um, so I would immediately, I would want to start do, doing my own Bible study right here, but I'm, I would, would give the listener the ability to finish before I start doing it. But here we can hit pause and we are going to do this. So tender eyed. Now, the, the Christian Standard Bible has, let me, uh, I think I just read it a minute ago, but just because... Um, I want to make sure I read it again. Um, Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. All right. So the shapely, uh, it seems she she talked about her translation had a good figure or whatever the case may be. Okay. All right. So there seems to be some possible support for that. But this tender eyed, tender eyed, what? Okay. Let's see what the, uh, I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible app. That's Genesis, I believe it's 29. I believe it's verse 17. All right. Verse 17, tender-eyed. It means tender, soft, delicate, weak. Tender, delicate, weak of heart, soft, gentle. Tender, fair-hearted, weak, tender-hearted. It can mean weak. It can be soft and tender. So does it mean, do we go with the idea that it's weak or do we go with the idea that it could be soft and tender eyes? Okay. I I don't know. In other words, I I don't don't know how dogmatic I could be there and which way to go with that. I'd have to look at all the translations and see how many say, her eyes are weak. This other woman is, man, whoo. She, she's shapely. She has a great figure. She's beautiful. And that girl over there, she just got weak eyes. She's got weak eyes. Or does it mean that her eyes are tender and fair and like soft? There, there's a tenderness there in, in her eyes. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but okay, we'll see where she goes with this. Y'all, I don't even know what that means, <laughs> but it does not sound good. The poor girl, she's got some weak eyes. And in verse 18, it says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Laban gives him the blessing of all blessings where it says, well, it's better I give her to you than some other guy. Stay here with me. So Jacob served for seven years to get Rachel. Embrace yourself. This is the most romantic phrase in the Bible. It says, But those seven years seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Let's just be honest. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, not Rachel, and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban, his servant, Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, first of all, I have a really hard time understanding how this could even happen. I mean, come on. How did Jacob not realize that this little switcheroo was going down? Like, I know that it was probably dark outside and that Leah might've been wearing a veil or something, but come on, Jacob, was there no other distinguishing characteristics between these two girls? Like, what about her voice? Did she like not say anything the whole time? Like, come on, this is just not okay. 
And then I, I love that verse. It just, it makes me cringe so much where it says, and then morning came and there was Leah and Jacob wakes up and he's like, oh my gosh. And he sits up and he puts his head and his hands on the side of the bed. And he's like, what have I done? And then, and then there's poor. Now I know she's trying to make it funny. <laughs> and I know we're still working on our series on sexual violence in the Bible, but this story has got some serious issues, Right. Uh, obviously there's no concept of cons, I mean, is there, is this goes against any concept of consent? There's some troubling things about the story. And did the, did the other girl even have an opera choice? Did, Hey, you go, you go, you go, you go and, and you be with this man. Did Leah even have an, a choice? Is she forced to do this? Did she want to do this? And he, um, Jacob, he didn't know what he was doing. So, I mean, like, this has got some major ethical problems. I know it's fun to tell the story, like, in a joking way. Again, this is the, always the danger of preaching. It's always the danger of preaching. Preaching is such a dangerous endeavor, right? Because you're, you're publicly speaking, right? And so there's a tendency that you're focused on putting together a sermon. You want to be entertaining. You want to be engaging, and sometimes the text is not about being entertaining and engaging. Sometimes the text is like, wait, what just happened? Wait, this is messed up. But in sometimes of talking about the problems, we get caught up in, well, the performance, the performance of preaching. Look, I've, I've been guilty of it a million times, especially when you're dealing with historical narratives. You, you want to retell the story and you want to use comedic timing and you want to use dramatic pauses and you want to bring everyone into the story. And there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that. But it, it's just, I don't know. I mean, this story's got some ethical issues. Especially when you get into the discussion of sexual violence, consent, and a lot of issues going on here. Because I, it, it, did Leah even have an, a, a choice in the matter? And I know you people say, well, it was a different time back then. Okay, different time. It's still, it's still problematic. Okay. But again, I, I, I'm not shocked that these kinds of things would be happening because, well, human beings are broken on the inside and they do broken things externally. Okay. But all right. I, I, I'm, I, I, I want to see where this goes. We're at 41 minutes. Oh, we've got to finish this. Just, this may go long. I'm going to go as fast as I can. Here we go. Leah right there. I mean, she's like, imagine her. She's like, hi, good morning. It's me. I know this is a little awkward. Man, Jacob got punked in the worst possible way, right? But it's not just poor Jacob in this moment. It is also poor Leah because Leah knows that she is unwanted and she is unloved and she's unlovely. And she knows it. So the Bible says that when morning came, there was Leah and Jacob. Can you imagine this interaction? Jacob says to Laban, you punked me. What have you done? I served you for Rachel. And Laban says, well, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. That would have been really good information to have on the front end, Laban. Thanks for nothing. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So it's like a buy one, get one situation. You just have to work seven more years. And so Jacob did so. He finished. Yeah, but see, buy one, get one. Don't you realize how utterly troubling that is? The women are property. The women are property. They're like... Like any reasonable person reading this should, I, I know it's fun to make, make it a joke and make it funny, but there's not, this is troubling. The women are in this property. Buy one, get one. That's not something to joke about. It, it demonstrates the utter human depravity found even in the people mentioned in the Bible. There's nothing good about this. There's nothing great about this. Hey, you got one woman. Now, wait a minute. I thought it was one woman and one man for life. Isn't that what that we always say? Hey, people, we got to protect the sanctity of marriage. One woman, one man for life. Well, you just got your wife. You've got, that's over. It's done. But no, no, no. I'll go get another one. I just got to work seven more years. Oh, isn't this a beautiful love story? Is it a beautiful love story? Is it sinful? Right? Because everyone will run to Genesis. He made them male and female. He made them male and female. See, so there should be no gender confusion. Well, one man, one woman, and the two become one flesh. Did they just not become one flesh? 
Like, those are the kind of questions I have. I'm not here to turn it into like fun time. I'm not at the improv, okay? And, and again, she's 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 a great communicator. She's great. I'm not. I'm by no means am I criticizing her. Her. She's a better communicator than I am. She's got good. She she reads very clear where I don't. She's enunciating enunciating all of her words where I don't. I usually mispronounce things. She's got good comedic timing where I don't. So she's a better communicator. But my issue is I should be stopping here going, guys, we got a problem. Okay, today we're going to be studying Genesis 29, and we've got a problem. We're going to have to work through this. This is going to take, uh, I don't know, 17 weeks of a Bible study exercise to go, what in the world is going? The women here are treated like property that you just work for, and boom, you get. I want her. Work for seven years. Boom, here she is. Hey, I want that one. Work for seven years. You get that one, too. Right now, see, now I'm using a little bit of, of, of sarcasm there, but I mean, that, that, that's how the story comes across. And we're always like, yeah, it's such a beautiful, romantic, it's nothing beautiful or romantic about it. The women are property. The men just work to get them. And well, you end up with more than one wife. <laughs> Where's the whole beautiful sanctity of marriage? Liberals are destroying the sanctity of marriage. The LGBT community is destroying the sanctity of marriage. And I will argue that God's people have been destroying the sanctity of marriage since, I don't know, the beginning of marriage. Okay, that's what I would say. Okay, that we do a a good enough job because we always look at the external things trying to break things, but the things are broken from the inside because of the depravity of those of us, whether lost or saved. It's just, it's just, it's like one thing where like that destroys marriage. And then you look at what Christians have done and what even the people in the Bible have done. You go, what was that? What was that? But okay, churches don't handle things this way. So my criticisms sometimes are not fair because I preach in a complete, I like, I would be like just having a field day going, we got problems here. I don't even understand this. I don't even know what to do. And by the time we're done, people are like, I don't even know what to believe anymore. I, people hate my way of doing it because I would ask 9,000 questions here. But okay, let's see where they go with this a week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. I want to zero in on that phrase that his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. It'd be real easy to skim right over that, that phrase, but I want it to settle into our hearts what that actually felt like. To be in a relationship and to know that there's actually no love here. If for some of you, you probably don't have to stretch your imagination that far to understand what that feels like. And maybe you grew up in a family where there was a lot of sibling competition, a lot of sibling rivalry. And perhaps it was obvious to everyone, including you, that your parents favored your sibling more than they favored you. And so you grew up thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I less lovable? What do I need to do to earn my parents' attention and their affection? And you know, being unloved, it messes with us. It affects our our core identity. And this is exactly what Leah is experiencing in this moment. And I want you to notice in this next verse, the the tenderness and the compassion of God in his response to her. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. He gave her a gift, but Rachel remained childless. It wasn't Rachel's time yet. So Leah is going to give birth to three sons in a row. And I want you to take note of what she names them and why she names them that. It says, Leah became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Can you just feel it inside of Leah? That these names 
of her sons are reflecting what's going on in her heart. I just want to be loved. So she names Reuben and she says, surely my husband's going to love me now. And then there's Simeon and she says, God sees I'm not loved. And then there's Levi and she says, now at last, my husband's going to become attached to me because I bore him three sons, but it never happens. And every time she is wrecked with disappointment, God has given her this amazing gift, these beautiful, healthy baby boys, but she can't receive the gift because she's so focused on the flaw. She's so focused on what she doesn't have. She doesn't have Jacob's love. Isn't it interesting that Leah had children, but no love. And Rachel had love, but no children. And they were both miserable. They were both jealous and discontent because they were focused on what they didn't have. That's what happens in our lives that we can be blessed in a thousand ways, but there's this brokenness that we, that we hyper-focus on and it eliminates our ability to enjoy the blessing of God. Okay, now she does a great job here of going through the text, very good job, bringing her concepts out from the text. So this is, in some ways, I like this sermon far better than her husband's sermon, but it, to be fair, it was only one sermon of his. I, just what he did with Ephesians 4 was somewhat, in, in my mind, traumatic, because I think he kind of replaced the preaching of God's word with, with groups, and groups is what helps you grow, not God's word. It, it was really subtle and, and really kind of messed up. But in this particular case, she's bringing out some great points here. Now, I would argue how do they end up in this case, in this situation? You could say they end up in this situation because of the depravity of human beings, right? The reason they end up in this broken situation where one has children and no love and the other one has love and no children and no one is satisfied and no one is happy because they end up in a situation where it's not one man and one woman for life. No, 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 no. It's going to be one man and I guess multiple women and all, and the women are nothing but property that you just simply work to get. Now he loves one of them, but the whole thing just seems very, it seems to be more to me a reflection of the depravity of man. That's what it seems. This to me is more of evidence of the, the result of the fall. From Adam and Eve, you end up here with this crazy story that is tw truly messed up and problematic, demonstrating the reality of depravity. She seems to want to look at it, the reality of the things that break us, but the things that break us is the brokenness that's inside of us. The same brokenness that leads to this is inside Jacob. It's inside Leah. It's inside Rachel. It's inside all of those sons, Simeon, Levi. It's, a, it's, a, it's in all of them. Um, I don't have all the names here. Reuben, yeah, Reuben, all, all of the sons. So it's in everyone. And whatever brokenness they are experiencing are the things that are breaking them externally. They will then turn around and do things to break others because that's what we do. But all right, let's see where they go with this. It happens because we get fixated on our flaws and we cannot experience the fruit of the favor of God. When we fixate on our flaws, we can't feast on God's favor. That brokenness inside of us becomes what we focus on. And it's all that we can see. It's all that we experience. We can't. All right, this is an interesting concept. All right, so if I was taking notes, I would be writing that. We, we, if we fixate on our flaws, we cannot feast on God's favor. Is that a biblical concept? We should not fixate on our flaws. We should not fixate. Now, what do you mean by our flaws? Like, like, are you just referring to like just looks, weaknesses? Are you saying that we should not fixate on our spirit or on our sinfulness, our depravity, our sin? Like, what do you mean by don't fixate on our flaws? Don't fixate. If you fixate on the flaws, you can't feast on God's favor. That's that. That's a good that's a good statement, works good on a bumper sticker, sounds good, but what's the theology of that? Is that a theological concept that, hey, do not fixate on your flaws, because if you do, you won't be able to feast on God's favor. It sounds super spiritual, right? It sounds super spiritual. I just have to try to process it theologically. To know. It, it may make sense. Well, let, let's give her the chance to work this out.
experience the blessing of God. You see, Leah knew that she was unwanted and she was unloved and unlovely. And those flaws became the banner of her life. It was the thing that marked her and it affected every relationship that she was in. And so her relationship with her husband was broken and her relationship with her sister was competitive and dysfunctional. And even her relationship with her kids was distorted because Leah could not show up for them emotionally the way that a mother should because she herself was, was unhealthy and not whole. Whoa, 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 whoa. Leah was not there for her kids emotionally. I'm I'm just thinking, is that is that true? Is there is there a biblical text that would show, hey, Leah was just not there for her kids emotionally? Or did she just did she just insert that idea into the story? Did she just take you know artistic license here? Or would you have a we I would have to think, okay, if I think of all the story, is does does Leah show up over and over and over as not being emotionally there for her children? That's a major assertion. That's a major accusation. It may be true, but I would need some scriptural support to back that up. That I, I, if I was taking notes, I would write that down. I'll say we're going to have to investigate that. And her brokenness became what she was fixated on. She was fixated on her flaw. That brokenness in Leah became her bondage and she drug it around with her. She shackled herself to it everywhere she went. She just, she just drug it into every relationship. This is my brokenness. This is who I am. These are my flaws. And it affected everyone. And today we're going to talk about two different responses to brokenness. And this first response that Leah is showing us, this is the default response to brokenness. And it's that our brokenness can become our bondage. Our brokenness can be something that affects everything. We just drag it around with us. And it can happen with brokenness that you are aware of in your life. You know some of your flaws. It can happen with brokenness that you're not aware of. That it's just in there deep inside and it's never bubbled up to the surface for your realization. But our brokenness is affecting the way that we see life. It's affecting the way that we interact with people. And the only way for it not to be our bondage is if we will make an intentional choice to understand what the brokenness is and to learn how to respond differently in a healthy way to this brokenness. It can become our bondage. Now, the Bible, it doesn't give us a lot of information about Leah's parenting strategies, but if we can kind of connect the dots of what we do know, we know what she named her sons. We have a few snapshots of their family dynamics, and we know how her boys turned out. And if we connect those dots, we can see that there was so much dysfunction in the house of Jacob. And let me give you just three quick snapshots. The first one is that one of Leah's sons slept with his stepmom. That's weird. Like, I don't care who you are. That's weird. You just, you don't do that. Right? I mean, can we, I mean, I didn't hear much amen in this audience. Can we just agree? That's weird. Right? Um, the second snapshot would be that uh, one time Leah's sons schemed together. They, they decided they were going to trick an entire city into circumcising all their men. They said, if you want to be friends with us, you guys all have to be circumcised. And so the, the guys were like, okay, sure. And so they did it. And while those men are recovering from their surgery... Leah's boys decide to, to attack the unsuspecting city and they kill everybody. Like this is not good. And then the third example is later on, her sons scheme together and they decide to sell one of their own brothers into slavery. And so we've got here, we've got adultery, we've got murder, we've got human trafficking. Like these are not good guys. They are not men of upstanding character. And there is so much dysfunction in the house of Jacob. And I'm not saying what I do not want to imply or say here is that all of these bad choices could have been avoided if Leah was just a better mom. 
because heaven help me, I do not want to inflict any more mom guilt on society. Girls, we got enough mom guilt, don't we? I mean, we are all sorting through mom guilt. And that is not what I'm saying. If there is one thing I have learned in my 15 years of motherhood is that my kids are, my, are their own people and they're going to make their own choices. But you, can you imagine the difference that it could have made if Leah had been whole and healthy herself? I don't want to blame her, but can you imagine the difference it would have made if she was a whole person? You do realize she can be as whole as whole can be, but her children were born sinners. Her brokenness did not inflict the brokenness on the boys. The boys were born broken and flawed. Right. I, 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 this, this is starting to become problematic. This is starting to now go basically almost semi-Pelagian. I, I, I'm going to stress this again, her brokenness, her depravity. Yeah. Her boys have the same depravity. So in what I, Hey, I don't want to, Hey, I don't want to have any mom guilt, but Hey, can you imagine how things would have turned out if she wasn't so broken? If she would have been whole, she would have never been whole because she was depraved. The boys were born depraved. The story of Genesis is the outworking. Think of it this way. The theological thesis of Genesis is that all of humanity after the fall are born depraved sinners. To demonstrate that, you have the story of real people and real families. And guess what you see over and over and over? You see deceit, lying, rape, slavery, human trafficking, adultery, you have it all. You have murder, you have it. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, what the reader should do is like, the whole world is messed up. Hey, I know in Genesis 6, everyone was messed up and you flooded the world. I think we need another one by the time we get to the end of Genesis. And then in Exodus, I think everyone needs to be killed again. And by that time you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and over and over, I think everyone needs to be killed. I think everyone needs to be killed. I think everyone needs to be killed. And then by the time you're done reading the Bible, you look in the mirror and you're like, and so do I. Like it, the demonstrate, this just demonstrates that everyone is broken in the story. Everyone is broken in the story. Why is everyone broken? Because life chipped away at them or because they're born broken flower pots. They're broken. They're born broken vessels. They're born broken and depraved. But it's weird. I don't want to heap any mom guilt, but I just want you to know that her boys possibly could have turned out better if she was whole. Really? If she had been a mom that was available to intentionally show up and invest into the character development of her sons to teach them. She's accusing the woman of not being available. She wasn't available. She wasn't there. She didn't teach them. How are you coming to that conclusion? I need scripture. You're, she has made some serious accusations at, at Leah. Some serious accusations. If you felt bad for her because she had weak eyes, you've just turned her into an utterly, absolutely, basically horrible mom. You know, she was just, she wasn't there emotionally. She just didn't teach them. She was just... She was so broken that she was useless. That's me. Leah is complete garbage. Leah is a dumpster fire of a mom. Don't be a, a mom like Leah. She was trash. I mean, she's not saying it, but that's what she's saying. But, but it's not her fault. It's not her fault. It's not her fault because she was broken because of all well, the way Jacob treated her. Because she, she wasn't good looking. She, she could, she was chained by her flaws, by the lack of, of having weak eyes and not a, a smoking hot body. I guess that's, that's what broke her. And then she was not loved by Jacob. That's, that's what broke her. And then that, that brokenness she passed on to her kids because she was not intent, she was not a good mom. That, that's basically what we're getting here. Like, how about the reality of human depravity? We're gonna, we're gonna try to finish this. I don't know if we're gonna be able to. We're gonna try. The ways of God, how much of these, how much of these painful decisions could have been averted if there was a level of intentionality in, Le in Leah's parenting? You see, our brokenness, it's affecting more than just us.
So there's no intentionality in her parenting. Where is she deriving all of this? Didn't the kids have a father? Hello? <laughs> hey, Leah, you really messed up. You, you, your kids were train wrecks. Your kids were garbage. I mean, they're murderers, adulterers. Uh, they wanted to kill their brother. Where's the dad? And didn't they have another, didn't they have another mom? I mean, well, I mean, how did the family work? Did, did Leah only take care of those sons and, and Rachel? I mean, how did that work there? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the fact is the whole family was broken because the whole family was put together in a, I don't know, unbiblical manner. And maybe Jacob should have just said, well, Leah's who I'm with. That, that got one man, one woman for life. Maybe he should have just stayed there and, and kept, sacrificed his love for Rachel and, well, do what supposedly the biblical model of marriage is. But I mean, Jacob doesn't get any of the blame here. <laughs> Leah, man, you're a trash mom. You're a trash. You're just trash. That's what I'm getting. Hey, I don't want to heap any mom guilt on anyone. Just don't be like Leah for crying out loud. Your kids will end up killing a whole army of people and committing adultery and trying to, and, and, and human traffic your, their brother. I, I, that, this is, but we're going to have to stop because we have uh, 19 minutes left and we're already at an hour and five minutes. So we're going to have to stop. I don't want to stop, but we're going to have to stop. So let me grab my notebook here, my notebook, and we're going to put Stacy Wood. 19 minutes left. There we go. All right, we didn't get to beauty, brokenness, then birth yet. <laughs> we didn't get there yet. So we didn't get the simple gospel yet, but I, maybe we're headed that way. We will see, but we'll stop right there. And again, we were reviewing this because she's about to become the teaching pastor of one of the most influential churches in America, Saddleback. All right, we'll stop there. We'll come back and we'll finish this here soon. All right. Thanks for listening. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. God bless.